Matthew chapter 13, in verse 31, we read another parable. He put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The parable is a description of the kingdom of heaven and this is one of those eight parables that are called the parables of the kingdom. This parable is repeated in Mark chapter 4 verse 30 and 32 and Luke chapter 13 verses 18 and 19. The parables in Matthew 13, like I said, have been called the kingdom parables because they give us insight and information about this thing that we call the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In the first parable of the sower and the soils, we discovered the good news. The gospel would be rejected by most people. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, the second parable of the grain and the the weeds or the wheat and the tares, we discovered that both believers and unbelievers would exist side by side until the coming of Christ and the future judgment in chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and then again in verses 36 through 43. Now Jesus will tell us that the kingdom of heaven will start small. It will grow quickly. It will include both helpful and harmful elements. Perhaps Jesus even intimates the future inclusion of the Gentiles. And we are at once stunned by the parable's brevity, simplicity, and mystery. Parables are stories that demand a response. In each and every parable that we've looked at, I've reminded you that a parable is an earthly story that represents a heavenly truth. And so, we begin to understand that Jesus means for the parable to provoke a response It isn't unusual for there to be an emotional response, a reaction, and a recognition. But the emotion, reaction, and recognition is intended for you to understand who Jesus is and what his message is and what the kingdom really means. And so we begin with the kingdom proclaimed. Look at verse 31 at the beginning. It says another parable he put forth to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like A mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Remember, remember, it is an earthly story with a heavenly truth attached to it. We've also said that a parable is a kind of extended analogy. It's a way to lay two things side by side and then compare them. And the challenge of interpretation is to remind us That metaphors and similes and allegories in the Bible, they mean something. But let me give you a prohibition or a restriction. 
The parable can never mean what it never meant. It can never mean what it never meant. So what does it mean? Our interpretation has to fall within the categories of the Bible itself. In the first parable, Jesus explained it to us. Kind of made it easy. In the second parable, Jesus explained it to us. Making it easy. In this parable... There's no explanation offered. And so again, what does it mean? Once again, I'm going to suggest to you that the first two parables offer the key to help us understand what's being said. In the parable of the sower and the soils, you'll remember that the same expression was used. Let's think about it for just a moment. The kingdom of heaven is like tares. False Christians make believers. Now the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Small, insignificant. Later Jesus is going to use the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven in verse 33. It's like a treasure in verse 44. It's like a merchant who's trying to purchase beautiful pearls in verse 45. It's like a dragnet in verse, verses 47 through 50. In all of those examples, Satan snatches the seed, starves the seed, smothers the fruit, counterfeits the seed in the tares, allows the plant to grow in what looks like an out-of-control circumstance or outside of its normal measures, the mustard seed. Or injects false doctrine, leaven within the meal. So once again, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 13 is clearly a reference to the Messiah's kingdom. But I'm going to suggest to you it's a reference to his kingdom in his absence. Jesus will live and he will die. He'll rise from the dead and he'll ascend to, the, to heaven. And so we see a mixture of good and evil and true and false. Jesus begins by, caring, by comparing the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. In the ancient world, the mustard seed was the smallest seed known to the Jewish audience. The bush grows to unexpected proportions to make it possible for birds to build their nests in its branches. So who's the man in the parable? In the first parable, the man is Jesus. In the second parable, the man is Jesus. We have every reason to believe that Jesus is the man in this parable. The word took is very interesting. It says in another, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took. And sowed. The word took is a word that implies something very intentional. It's the Greek word labon. It means to do something on purpose, to do something with intention, to do something with deliberation. It's something that's going to require purpose and thought. The planting isn't by chance or coincidence. Clearly, there's a plan in mind. The field is the world. 
and the world belongs to him. And we're immediately impressed that God has sent the man and that this planting has a purpose. And so we look at the mustard seed planted in the parable of the sower and the soils. The sower is the son of man, verse 37. The field is the world in which human beings live and dwell and grow in verse 38. Unlike, I said, the first two parables, Jesus doesn't offer an explanation of the parable of the mustard seed. So again, how do we understand its meaning? We search the scriptures. We draw conclusions based on what he's already revealed. And so in verse 32, look what it says. We look at the growth and the greatness of the seed. In verse 32, it says, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Some people point to this passage as proof that the Bible can't be true that it can't be trusted, that Jesus can't be the Lord and he can't be the king of heaven because every botanist in the world knows that the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed in the world. But what I suggest to you is that's not what the text says. The text doesn't say that the mustard seed is the smallest of the seeds. It says it's the least of the seeds. And in its context, we need to give it a, con a context that seems to make sense in that culture and society. Jesus knows what he's talking about. The key word is the least of all the seeds. Like I said, he doesn't say it's the smallest, but rather the least in relationship to the experience of his listeners. Jesus will use that same word in another context in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, when he points to the people who are, when you give them a cup of water or food to eat, he says, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Is he, is he suggesting that the least of his brethren are subhuman or not human? That's not, that's not the point at all. The Greek word translated smallest or least is micro, teron. You know that word. Micro. You know that word. Micro, teron. It's used in the Greek language as a comparative. It could be translated smaller. Not necessarily smallest. And by the way, that's the way it is translated in the New English Bible in the New American Standard. The thought of that word, micro, teron, means very small. Lenski writes, quote, Jesus is speaking of the seeds that were ordinarily planted in ancient gardens. Hence the remark that botanists know about many seeds that are still smaller is pointless, unquote. The mustard seed that Jesus references has no relationship to that plant that you and I think of as mustard, you know, the kind of yellow thing that you put on your sandwiches with your ham and your cheese. That's not the mustard, that's not deli mustard that he's talking about. This particular plant grows in the Middle East and particularly in the Galilee. 
And the mustard seed is more like a bush than a tree. As a matter of fact, if you ever have the opportunity to go with me to the Holy Land or take a cruise or, or go visit Israel, when you come to the Galilee, you're going to see on the mountain, it's going to be dotted with, with mustard seed plants. It's interesting too, the mustard seed, like I said, grows to an enormous size, an extraordinary size, and I think that that's part of the point that Jesus is making. The mustard seed is small and insignificant by almost every standard that measures smallness and insignificance. But within the tiny shell of the mustard seed lies this miraculous power to perpetuate itself. I know that some of you care about beauty and coordination. I know for some of you that colors need to match or things need to look beautiful. And I'm going to suggest to you that that sense of beauty and symmetry comes from God. God created you in such a way that the beautiful and, and makes important sense. And, and that's part of the point of this. Within the mustard seed lies the miraculous power to perpetuate life. Often at a funeral, when I go to the, the, the committal service, that's where you bury the person at the graveyard, I'll take a flower from the casket and I'll hand it to the husband or the wife or the son or the daughter and I'll remind them that as different as this flower is from the seed that produced it, that's how different the body that's sown is going to be different from the body that's resurrected. It becomes a type and a picture of life and beauty but also of mystery. A single kernel of corn can produce thousands of seeds in a month. Within the tiny shell of the mustard seed is this miraculous power. A dot-sized poppy seed can replicate itself tens of thousands of times in a single summer. In the book Unlocking the Mysteries of Creation, there's this quote. It says, quote, every plant is programmed to produce its own special seed, unquote. And I think that that becomes the type and the picture that Jesus is painting for us. That this thing called Christianity, this thing that the world calls Christianity, is placed in this greater thing called the kingdom of God. Botanists are aware that we can separate and analyze the chemical compounds within seeds. But not a single scientist has been able to produce a synthetic seed. You know, when you look at a seed, it looks like a dead piece of organic matter. But loaded and locked inside are an amazing series of complex processes that make life possible and beauty possible. And so I'm going to suggest to you it becomes a type and a picture 
not just simply of the church, but of all of the people who hear about God and who hear about Christ and who begin to read the message that's in the Bible and they begin to embrace a biblical worldview. In the parable of the seed and the soils, the seed represented the word of God. And we're told that the field is the world and the good seed are, were the sons of the kingdom and the tares the sons of the wicked one in verse 38. But now I'm going to suggest to you that the seed represents growth and so the real issue isn't whether or not at least in my mind that it represents growth is how do we explain the growth and what does Jesus mean by the growth and how are we to interpret the growth is this good growth is this false growth is this healthy growth or unhealthy growth we learn from the parables the enemy is Satan in verse 9 who opposes the plan of God. In the parable of the sower and the soils, the tares represented false Christians. They were called by Jesus the sons of the wicked one in verse 38, and then again in verse 40. And now the mustard seed represents false growth. And later the parable of the leaven or the yeast, the yeast becomes a type of false doctrine. So we have false Christians, false growth, false doctrine. The Bible contains interesting language that hints that the Gentiles would be included in God's plan. In Ezekiel chapter 17 verse 3 we read, And all the trees of the, sh of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. I've dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, unquote. Why does the prophet Ezekiel use this imagery of trees and plants and growth? I'm going to suggest to you, again, to give us clues. There's another one in, in, verse, in chapter 31, verse 6 of Ezekiel. There's, there's a parable of the cedar of Lebanon and the rebuke of Pharaoh's pride when Assyria is likened to a cedar tree which grows and then its branches become a forest. Its height is exalted. And in chapter 31, verse 6 of Ezekiel, we read, All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its boughs. Sound familiar? And of course, the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He had a dream about a tree whose height grew to heaven and it could be seen by all the earth in verse 21 of Daniel chapter 4. Whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of heaven had their home, unquote. So what do we think about this parable? I'm going to suggest to you that the seed represents the humble beginnings of Christianity. What's more humble than the, in the heart of a carpenter who lives on the outskirts of nowhere? A person who's born under supernatural circumstances, who begins to say the most incredible things that have ever been said, who begins to do the most incredible things that have ever been done. He claims to come from God. He claims to have a message of hope. He dies on a cross and he comes back to life. And he enlists as his disciples, 12 
people from the area in which he grows up in. The kingdom extends to the followers of Jesus. And in the early church, you have this picture in the book of Acts of a commitment to purity and sound teaching and unrelenting persecution. The Jesus movement starts very, very small. Jesus finds Andrew and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Paul says, not many noble, not many wise, as the world judges nobility and wisdom. And of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised God has chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring not those things that are that no flesh should Glory in his presence. God takes simple, simple, simple things and creates something amazing. And so the Jesus movement grows by men without position or prestige. But something happens. A series of persecutions that I already alluded to in our earlier study between the time of Nero and the time of Diocletian in the first 300 years of the church, there was an unrelenting persecution as there was a serious attempt to literally eradicate this thing called the Jesus movement. But then something happens. Constantine's edict takes place. Compromise descends And Christianity becomes related to and embraced by the state. And the birds make their nest in the growing bush. Jesus, by the way, uses the images of birds in verse 4. Let's read it again for those of you who have forgotten. As he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came. And devoured them. When we looked at that parable, I said, sorry, bird lovers. The Bible often will picture birds as uninvited guests, as enemies. And by the way, are these birds welcome in the bush or unwelcome in the bush? Like the enemy who sowed tares while the people slept. Are these birds that you want or birds that you don't want? And, and by the way, if you're a farmer or if you're planting a field, do birds present a threat to the crop as they eat seeds, as they damage plants and all of that other stuff? Does this parable mean that Christianity could become a nesting place for Satan and his agents? Does the mustard seed represent primitive Christianity with its origins in the words and work and ministry of Jesus? And I'm going to suggest to you that I think that that's probably what it does mean. The humble origins of the church and Christianity grow They become something at first recognizable, but then birds, agents of evil, make their nest in its branches. Is this a picture of infiltration of groups that wind up literally denying essential Christian doctrine? 
in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32, Paul delivers this chilling warning to the men who are serving as overseers of the church. He says, quote, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years, I didn't cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, unquote. The reason why this becomes important is Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, warned there's going to be false Christ. There's going to be false prophets there's, who will rise from among you. They'll show great signs and wonders as if to deceive, if possible, even the elect. He says, look, I've told you beforehand. I've given you advance warning in this parable. We see what some have called the intensification of mystery. Not simply the presence of evil, but its ability to permeate, infiltrate, deceive, and dominate. Congregations grow in size, they grow in strength, they grow in influence, and under the big umbrella called Christianity, many Christ-denying groups would form and still desire to retain the name Christian and Christianity. You don't know how many people I've talked to who I've said, do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? No. Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? No. Do you believe that he rose from the dead? No. Then why do you call yourself a Christian? This becomes in part the answer that maybe some of you have had in the past. You know that so-called Christianity contains several branches. All of us are familiar with Roman Catholicism. There's at least 12 different Eastern Orthodox traditions. There is Protestantism. There's liberal versions of Protestantism and conservative branches. But no matter what, how you slice it, dice it, or describe it, some of you have asked that question. Well, if, if Christianity is true and Jesus is Lord, then why do you have all of these different denominations? Why do you have all of these different people saying all kinds of different things? And Jesus anticipates it in this parable. Clearly, Christianity has large branches. Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox traditions, Protestantism. In the broad branches of Christianity, some also attempt to graft the branches of what Dr. Walter Martin lovingly called the kingdom of the cults. Mind science groups, Christian science groups, Mormon groups, Jehovah's Witness groups, people who claim some sort of relationship with this Bible and its New Testament and the story that it tells. But then for whatever reason, they distance themselves from the Jesus that's described and the gospel that's preached. 
But what about true believers? Do they also increase in number? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer is yes. Do the true believers increase in numbers? If you've ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, there's some astonishing things that are, that are told as the church begins to grow and unfold. Remember, there's a preaching event that takes place after the resurrection of Jesus and 5,000 people are saved. And then the Bible says in the book of Acts, and they added daily to their numbers. And this thing, this small thing called Christianity and Christians began to grow in Jerusalem. They spread out to Judea and Samaria. They went to Antioch and, and, and Anatolia, which is modern Turkey. They crossed the Hellespont Bridge and they went to Macedon or Macedonia and Greece. Then they went south and then back over the bridge to a place called Illyricum, which is modern Albania. They make their way to, to Italy. They make their way to Spain across the land bridge of Egypt, Christianity takes hold in Alexandria, it takes hold in Babylon, it spreads throughout the North African continent, so much so that by the middle of the second century, there are Christians everywhere. The number of true believers do increase, but the strength isn't necessarily in regards to wealth or the world's wisdom or the world's influence. Because even at that time, different groups of people began to rebel and resist the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus. So what is this parable telling us? I'm going to suggest to you again, in the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Jesus movement's going to grow. The Jesus movement is going to grow and it's going to be occupied by true believers and make believers. The mustard seed's growth would also make room for birds. Let's pause for just a moment because I want to say a word about growth. Because I think that there's two kinds of growth there's a healthy growth. And there's an unhealthy growth. You know, the older you get, like me, you start to lose hair where you want it, and you start to grow hair where you don't want it. Things stop growing in the right places, and they start growing in the wrong place. There's healthy growth, and there's unhealthy growth. And this mustard seed's growth is going to make room for birds. If the birds represent satanic agents, evil, demons, then this thing called Christianity becomes a nesting place for foul teachers and teaching, pun intended, by the way. In the coming destruction of Babylon, John the Apostle writes in Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, and he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. 
I heard that, ha, hey, that's interesting. The writer of the book of Revelation sees this as a picture of wickedness and evil and unwelcome guests. In the first parable of the sower and the soil, Satan snatches the word of God from human hearts. In others, he smothers the seed with worldliness. He sears the shoots with persecution. And if Satan cannot overcome the world, he plants the make-believer in the midst of true believers. So the false Christian, the children of the devil, where the Lord plants the true believers, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now in this third parable, Satan sits in the branches of Christendom and attempts to influence what you and I have popularly called the church. The bird builds nests. They infiltrate and devastate. Later in the parable of the leaven, Satan plants false doctrine in the lump. So how does Satan oppose the gospel and the plan of God? Again, largely through a campaign of deceit and imitation. Satan's servants will preach an imitation gospel. They'll offer an imitation Christ. They'll suggest an imitation salvation. Satan's servants plant imitation churches for the purpose of creating imitation Christians. But Satan wants a gospel that's meant to fool, a church meant to fool, a Christian meant to deceive. And what kind of church is that? And what kind of Christianity is that? It's one where it's detached from the gospel, the one that you've become familiar with. Can you imagine a church that doesn't believe that God sent his son to be the sacrifice for sin, the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. By the way, are other interpretations offered of the parable? Probably the most other dominant explanation that's given by some is that the point of the parable is the global success of Christianity, its worldwide influence, its worldwide effect, Will true Christian faith and Christian principles and a Christian worldview grow, expand, capturing the world in a global, triumphant way, capturing the church, influencing the church, or capturing the world, influencing the world, transforming the world? Well, my answer might surprise you, even though that, that is an explanation that is offered is there a part of that explanation that seems to make sense? And I'm going to suggest to you for a moment that the answer is clearly yes. Have both believer and make-believer and unbeliever benefited from the principles, the laws, the institutions present in the church? Does Jesus and the Bible and a biblical worldview offer something good and decent and wholesome to the entire world, even for a world that rejects it? I think that the answer is yes. What would the world be like if there were no Jesus, if there were no church, if there were no gospel? 
In one sense, again, the world has benefited because it, let's just go back in time just for a moment. In the ancient world of the first century, it wasn't uncommon in Rome for the Roman people to practice something called exposure. If you had a child who was disabled, if you had a child who wasn't wanted, in the potter, in, in, in that culture, in society, the father had absolute authority over every single person in his household. If a mother brought a child to the father and the father decided that he did not want this baby, he didn't want the boy, he didn't want the girl, maybe there was a blemish, maybe there was a problem, there was, maybe there was a disease, they would do the awful thing called exposure. They would take the child out to the elements and then let the child die. And Christians did more than just simply raise their voice in protest against this cruel practice. They would take the children and they would raise the children in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unwelcome and the unwanted, in spite of poverty and difficulty, Christians would pool their resources. They would support orphans and widows, the sick, the injured, the disabled. Basil of Caesarea and Chrysostom of Constantinople, this is the fourth century, urged the, the construction of what came to be called in their language, orphanotropia. It was the invention of orphanages where unwanted and unwelcome children could come and they could be loved and cared for and provided for. In a Rose pamphlet with, that's entitled What Christianity Has Done for the World, there's, there's some wonderful insights that are offered in that tiny little pamphlet. It's, it gives 50 key contributions that Christianity has given to the world. I don't have time to go over all of them, but let's just think about a couple of them. It was Christianity that brought support for the poor and the needy and the helpless. It was Christianity that invented the Salvation Army and YMCA and Food for the Hungry and the Lutheran World Relief. We could also include things like the American Red Cross, which was founded by Henry Dunant, and Samaritan's Purse, founded by my friend Franklin Graham. Christianity was an instrument that put in place child labor laws and the value of each person. It's Christianity that offers upwards of 300,000 meals every single day on six different continents all over the world. We could spend several Sundays outlining Christianity's commitment to human freedom, human dignity, social reform, education. Credible arguments have been made that modern science as we understand it today would not exist unless Christians with a Christian worldview were instrumental in its foundation. People like Robert Grosteste in the, 11th, in the 12th century. He was a Franciscan bishop. He was the first chancellor of Oxford. He's the person who first proposed the inductive experimental method where you gather information, where you form a tentative 
conclusion where you test hypothesis and you draw conclusions? What would the world be like without Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, Newton, Mendel, Louis Pasteur, George Washington Carver? Over 60 Nobel laureates claim a Christian worldview in chemistry, literature, physics, physiology, medicine, peace. Christians are largely responsible for this thing that we call education. No Christians and Christianity, education wouldn't exist the way that it does. No Christians or Christianity, hospitals and healthcare wouldn't exist. Florence Nightingale is considered the founder of nursing. She's a, she was a committed Christian. What about the arts? Bach, Michelangelo, Raphael, Rembrandt, literature, philosophy, Paul, Augustine, Dante, Calvin, Chaucer, Bunyan, Milton, Dostoevsky, the list goes on and on, Solzhenitsyn, Leo Tolstoy wrote, quote, the only significance that life has is to establish the kingdom of God. And now we begin to understand. Does the Bible teach a growing, global, church triumphant in one sense? Does it teach a shrinking, withering, persecuted, narrow, remnant church? In another parable in Luke 18, Jesus speaks of a certain judge who feared neither God nor man. This widow demanded justice from an adversary. The judge refused to rule in her favor, but the widow persisted and persisted until the judge did in fact rule in her favor. And Jesus tells the story to remind us that, that God is just. Not that God shuns or, or resists or is closing his ear or is looking for reasons to condemn people. The widow had no lawyer. We have Jesus. The widow had no legal counsel, but we have a high priest in heaven. She was an outsider. We are insiders. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The implication being, my, my answer might shock you. It won't be biblical faith that he'll find. He will find faith. But it isn't the kind of faith that saves you, that recognizes the need of a savior. It, is, it isn't the kind of faith that says, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with me. There's something broken inside of me. There's something in desperate need of a savior. Jesus will find faith when he returns. But the vast majority of earth's population will be trusting themselves. Their own righteousness. It would seem that trust in Jesus will be in short supply. I don't think we can summarily dismiss all the goodness done by the followers of Jesus and the churches of Jesus. But whatever the interpretation, Jesus leaves us with the, with the seeming overwhelming sense that the kingdom of heaven will have good elements and evil elements 
that there will be opposition, infiltration, and deception within the body of Christ. There's probably a larger question that we should ask of ourselves. And that is, what about you? Are you in the kingdom? Are you present in the kingdom in truth or in pretense? What of your allegiance to the king? Remember Jesus warned of false Christians and false growth and false doctrine, which is going to be coming up in the parable of the leaven. Jesus is going to use these parables to confront people with the word of God and the plan of God and the claims of Christ to strengthen their faith and to grow in their understanding. But he's also going to use it as an opportunity for those who reject Jesus and reject the gospel and reject his love and reject his mercy to grow in their skepticism and hostility towards Christ and the, the gospel. Remember what the parables do. They appeal to our emotion. The message is intended to provoke a response. To ask and answer the question, am I in the kingdom? Does my loyalty lie with the king? Is that you? Do you know him? Do you love him? Are you serving him? Are you concerned about the things that Jesus is concerned about? What it means to have a right relationship with the Father. What it means to have fellowship with each other. What it means to, to function in the capacity that you were meant to function in from the time that God ordained your visit to this world. Do you know Jesus? Have you received him as your savior? I'm going to give you an opportunity to do exactly that. If you don't know him, if you've never met him, if you've wandered far from him, I want to encourage you to come back and offer you an opportunity to come and see me right after this service. There'll be men and women here to talk with you and pray with you if you want to have a right relationship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, whatever the meaning of this parable is, Lord, one thing is clear. Christianity will start out small and it will grow to enormous size. Will that growth be healthy or unhealthy? Will it, will it be biblically pure or impure? And Lord, we pray that as we look out over this great big thing that we call Christianity and we see its commitment to those fundamental things that were offered in the beginning, hope, grace, mercy, 
an invitation to experience forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God based purely and simply and fundamentally on placing our trust in Jesus. And Heavenly Father, again, I pray for each man and each woman. They may have grown up in a Christian home, or maybe all of this is brand new. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart and that you would extend the invitation that if they want to know you and if they want to experience that love and that grace and that mercy, if they want to have their hearts filled, not just simply with the truth, but with purpose and meaning and direction and guidance and grace, that they would pray that simple prayer, that they believe that you've sent Jesus to be the savior of our souls, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead for our justification, and that if we would in simple confidence place our trust in him, that we could experience the forgiveness of sin in a right relationship with you. And so again, Father, I pray for that man, that woman, who needs to know you and love you, that they would pray that prayer, that they would offer themselves to you for the future that you have for them and the plan that you have for them. We commit that to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, again, I want to just invite you to come up and talk with me and pray with me and be encouraged and know that God has a plan for your life and a, and a future for you. Let's stand.